This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, this is Bo from What The Hack, and this week our episode is, uh, it's not an easy one. And if you have any issue with talk about suicide or self-harm, this might not be the episode for you. A full disclosure, it really did a number on me. Now, if you're ready to go, here's this week's show. Sextortion and online harassment affect teens and young people, and too often the results are tragic. Our guest this week talks to us about his son who committed suicide after he was targeted by a sextortion ring. It's difficult subject matter, but you do not want to miss this episode. Welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam Levin. I'm Bo Friedlander. And I'm Travis Taylor. John, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your son. This is a really important story. Your advocacy is is even more important. But before we start, I just want to tell you how sorry I am for your loss. And because of that, I don't even know where to start. So maybe the best place to start is at the beginning. Yeah, so our story really began on the night of Thursday, March 24th, 2022. That was the last time that I saw Jordan alive. I ran into him at our house. He had come from his mother's house. We were planning to leave for a vacation. We, we had a two-week Florida vacation planned, which we do every year. And Jordan loved the beach, and it was something he was really excited about. And he came home from his girlfriend's house a little after 10 o'clock. I was just getting ready to go to bed for the night, and I, and I kind of just crossed past them quick and in the foyer and just said, hey, how's it going? Good to see you, you know, and, and um, yeah, ready for tomorrow, yeah. Just short talk, and I said, well, okay, I'll catch up with you in the morning. And that's the last time I saw him. How old was Jordan? Jordan was uh, 17. He was about eight, six, eight weeks from his 18th birthday. Can you tell us a little more about your son? Uh, Jordan was just a really happy, big smile, kind of the guy that, you know, lit up a room when you walked into it. He was, he was always uh, very charismatic and funny, and he was very diverse in his friendship. He was an amazing brother. He was a great son. He was easy to raise. He, was, he just, he turned out to be a really great kid and he was well on his way uh, to being a fine adult. His, his grades were um, fantastic. He was honors, you know, graduated with honors um, and or would have graduated with honors. We trusted him pretty much with anything. Um, but, you know, he was a boy too. And he always had, a, always had the things growing up like every other parent. Jordan was an amazing athlete. He played basketball early on. He started basketball in early grade school. And then he got into a, a travel team. He tried out for a travel team at a young age and made that travel team pretty much regularly. And then he got into baseball as well. So he played baseball and basketball um, kind of simultaneously. And then as he got into junior high, he got involved in football too. That was kind of really where his passion lied. And he kind of veered away from baseball after a while. He played for five or six seasons, did really, really well, um, but he just wasn't feeling it. So he moved on to football. A lot of the all-star kids got together at the end of the regular season in junior high and high school and played in uh, tournament teams. So we traveled, did tournament basketball on the weekends in the wintertime. So you spent a, so you spent a ton of time with him and you, you so you, were, you guys were really close. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Jordan was always really close to both my household and his mother. His mother and I divorced early on so he lived in a separate household for pretty much his entire life but mm-hmm. i'm remarried been remarried for a long time i i have two daughters he had two sisters they're nine and seven now and then his mother is also remarried and he has two sisters there wow so so you had a really close relationship with jordan it sounds like 
Very much so. Jennifer and I, his mother and I, we split time with him pretty much his whole life. So he would spend a week at my house, week at her house. And we switched on Fridays. Typically was a good day to do that. And I always recommend parents to do Fridays instead of Sundays for a lot of reasons. He would come home from school on Friday, drop his backpack and stuff. And we'd have to worry about school or anything until Sunday. And then when Sunday came around, we weren't doing a, you know, the shuffle and clothes and bags and drop-offs and pickoffs and all that stuff in the summertime. So we, we, we got along really well. We still got along really well even after the tragedy. So we've, we've prided ourselves over the year of, you know, keeping tabs on, on, our, on Jordan basically and, and being the parents that, that he needs, even, even in separate households. He, he didn't get away with a whole lot. It sounds like he had a, love, a lot of uh, love and support there. He did. So Jordan sounds like he, I don't know how big he was. How, how big was Jordan? Jordan was six foot two and he was 184 pounds. Oh my gosh. So the world was absolutely 100% his oyster in terms of yeah. sports. Right. So where was he thinking about going to school? So he wanted to originally, he was obviously pining for D1, but he, he was looking at other options. It was going to be interesting. I think he planned on probably attending Northern Michigan University here locally is what was what was going to happen. His girlfriend was kind of keeping him grounded here a little bit. And um, that's that's kind of the direction he was poking at. So, and we're a D2 here. Well, he sounds he sounds like an amazing kid. And it sounds like you guys had a lot of fun together. We did. Yeah, we did a lot of stuff together. So it sounds like you had a very uh, rich, uh, kind of active life. Um, how active was he on social media? Um, early on, not at all. We, we kept him from social media forever, as long as we could. Uh, towards, at the end, he was probably using it quite a bit. <clears throat> yeah, I would say probably regularly. But at that point, I mean, he was a few weeks away from being 18. And we weren't strapping him down too much. And we had really no reason not to trust him on social media at that point. And we've had a lot of the conversations about social media dangers and stuff. So we thought, and so we just kind of let him at, let at, you know, let him do his own thing. Yeah. Now we, I imagine he wasn't doing like TikTok dances and stuff, but was he, was he, uh, was he, he was an active user on which platform mostly? Yeah, I think, you know, I would say he used Instagram mostly. It seemed like the picture platform there. I, I know he was diving into TikTok a little bit. Not actually, I don't think he's posting much on TikTok, but I think he was on there watching videos mostly. He used to watch a lot of sports reels. He, he was, I would say he was pretty active on it. John, tell us exactly what happened to Jordan that night on Instagram. Jordan received a message from someone named Danny Roberts' um, Instagram message. And somebody he did not know reached out to him and just said hi. And he accepted her friend request on Instagram and then started communicating with her. What he thought to be a young, um, young, young lady right around 1015 that night. We don't know the entirety of the transcript because it's an open investigation. So we're just starting to get some of that information now. So he received his first text message from Instagram from the Danny Robbins that he accepted at like 10.15. Um, that's right about the last time that I saw him. And then that conversation continued. And you can imagine it probably started innocently. You know, they talked about themselves and, um, you know, what they do and just that they were, you know, they were just baiting him in a little bit. And as, as things progress, the sexual nature probably ramped up, as you can imagine. And then sometime after about midnight, uh, from what I understand, is when he actually sent his first compromising photo to her. And it was a photograph of himself that he took? Yep, yep. So basically what, what, the, what the trick is, is they, they come into you as a young lady, they pretend to be friends, it's just a friendship, and then, oh, you're cute, and here's a picture of me, and send me a picture of you, and so... Those kinds of things happen and it slowly turns up um, the sexual volume and then they convince the victim to send a, you know, a nude picture of themselves in some fashion. And Jordan did. So when he sent that photo, everything changed. That's when it all changed. And that's when Jordan found out that Danny Roberts was not a pretty young lady, but it was actually a male. And then the extortion started happening. It sounds like the uh, bulk of this interaction happened over the course of one evening. Yes. So the first text message came in at 10.15 roughly, and Jordan died at 3.45 that morning. Oh, wow. Wow. So less than six hours. So during that six hours, 
was Jordan and the the person who was scamming him. Were they talking the whole time? Yes. Yeah, and that's really what they do. It's part of the it's part of the the process, right? They want to keep pushing and pushing and pushing, um, and not give any room to breathe, and just make sure that they're doing what he's what they're told. And they went to great lengths to make sure that they believed what they were saying. So they said, we're going to send this picture to everybody unless you send us money. Um, they wanted $1,000 to start, and Jordan didn't have that kind of money. So they went down and negotiated, and Jordan ended up paying them $300. And $300 wasn't enough. So they sent him money, and then they wanted more. What we know now is it was conspiracy. So we have one person that's speaking uh, to Jordan, and then we have another person in the background that's building graphics. So they took Jordan's picture and made a collage out of it with all of the friends and family uh, pictures that they took offline. And they knew everything about Jordan and they just keep pushing out on him. And he finally finds a way to give him the only $300 that he had left in his checking account. And he just had no more money to give him. How did he send the money? I'm not sure yet. Hmm. I don't know. Have you seen any of the actual messages that went back and forth? Some, yes. And, and what was the nature, if you remember, of what they were saying? Um, well, you can read the indictment because some of them are in there. When Jordan died that morning, I, I found him in his bedroom um, and he shot himself in his bed. And that morning, I we I had no idea what happened. I mean, we were totally blindsided. It was complete shock, um, as you can imagine. And we didn't even know that this stuff was going on until um, later the next day. And the only reason why we knew is because the extortionist made one mistake and they sent it, they sent the picture to his girlfriend. And I believe that they did that. I'm not sure on the timeline. I don't know that to be true, but we, we believe that we, the extortionist sent the picture probably after Jordan died. They were trying to extort her, would be my guess. They were probably going to try to grab her next, um, saying, this is your boyfriend's picture. We're going to send it to everybody, pay us, that kind of thing. I, I'm speculating there, but I'm guessing that's what's happening. But anyway, they sent that picture. That's she's the only person that we know of that that received the actual picture. Nobody else that they threatened to show actually received the picture. So was there a note or anything or nothing? No, no, no. Um, Jordan actually texted his girlfriend, um, and he texted his mother, "Mother, I love you." And that was it. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's it's horrible. Um, it um it's it's just so tragic because you know it's 300 bucks right you know and poor jordan he just was out of his damn mind at, at night and it was just they were just on him and on him and he's three in the morning he's exhausted and tired he doesn't know what to do everybody's sleeping you know the world's closed it's 2 30 in the morning three in the morning and he just felt trapped and you know, I think he's, he, Jordan was just so willful and, you know, I think he felt like he made a huge, huge mistake and, and the only way out was to take his life and, and pay for what he did. And, um, it's really unfortunate because I'd have been in the car with him for 18 hours driving to Florida and I would have figured it out by the Wisconsin border probably. So it's hard to look back and, and play the money morning quarterback, but, um, it's, uh, it certainly would have been some signs there, I'm guessing. Yeah. I I want to say obvious things like, you know, I wish every sociopath could listen to this story so they could understand mm -hmm. what stress they produce to get money can do to a person. I mean, I, I think the uh, sick thing here is that I think they're probably uh, pretty well aware of that. But in terms of the person that reached out, how did you end up uh, kind of putting together the pieces there to find out more about them and kind of how they operate? Um, his girlfriend opened up her Instagram account the next day and discovered that this photo existed. And she contacted us and said, I don't know what's going on here, but this person sent me this picture of Jordan. And um, she, she sent it to us and we were just like, holy cow, what is happening? Um, so we contacted the sheriff's department who did the initial investigation the day before on Friday and gave him the information. Um, and then he ended up doing some digging and they got the FBI involved and they ended up getting a search warrant after, after some time 
and under an emergency act through their channels and discovered that this entire transcript had happened because Jordan actually deleted all of his chat history and Instagram information. So at face value, everything was gone on uh, social media. So once the transcript was produced, the sheriff's department called us and said, hey, listen, this is what happened. Jordan was being sextorted. It's a thing. We had never heard of sextortion being a thing. And he kind of briefed some of the um, transcript. And that's 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 pretty much where I, the only place I know the information from was, was the original contact ahead of the sheriff's office. And they just kind of briefed it and basically said it started out innocent, kind of ramped up. And then, you know, the, the switch happened, the extortion happened, and he read some of the negotiation stuff that went back and forth. And then ultimately what happened is Jordan um, told the extortionist, he said, I'm going to kill myself right now because of you. And the extortionist said, good, go ahead. You better do it fast or I'm going to make you do it. And that was the last thing that was said. That's horrible. I'm really sorry. Yeah. And then on Friday morning, when I found him, his um, his mother had actually text messaged me. That's that's what happened first on Friday morning. I was just getting up. It was 7.30. My wife was getting up with her two younger daughters. And Jennifer texted me and just said, hey, is Jordan, did Jordan make it to school? Question mark. And I was saying, well, that's weird because Jordan always makes it to school. I mean, he, he, I don't think he ever missed the bus or missed a ride two times his entire school career. Um, so I thought that was kind of odd. So I looked out my front window and saw that his truck was still in my driveway. And I was thinking, well, that's odd. You know, you should have been gone for at least 15 minutes already. Um, so that's when I went downstairs and, and, um, and I saw him in his bed. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing and I need to make split second financial decisions. And that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks and I trade options and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You gotta know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rogue Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rogue's got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. So let's talk about sextortion for a moment. John, you know, you mentioned that you didn't know what sextortion was when the police told you that that is what happened to Jordan um, but I'm, I'm guessing you know a lot about sextortion now. Can you tell our listeners about sextortion? Sextortion is kind of a glamorized term for this specific mode of extortion. And basically what it is, is perpetrators are posing as either young ladies or young men, depending on who they're 
victimizing because women are being victimized with this too uh, quite regularly. But they start out just innocent conversations, right? So all these young people are on social media, just meeting people all over the planet, not, not a care in the world. They accept their friend request, they start chatting, and then the the chats kind of change. They start throwing out little nuggets. Oh, you're cute. Oh, this is a picture of me. And then they send a picture back. And then they're just, they slowly walk them down this rabbit hole until they get them comfortable enough to send a compromising photo of themselves. And when they do that, then the extortion happens. And then they, they build content and they show that they're going to send it to people. They actually, they'll go as far as to make fake screenshots of their laptop as if they sent it to people. So they'll they'll make a fake screenshot, making it look like they sent it to 15 different people on Instagram or, or whatever. And so the the victim is feeling like, oh my God, they just sent it to my friend's mom and my my coach's wife and my girlfriend and my girlfriend's parents. So they'll make you believe that. But in reality, it's not actually being sent. It's all fake. So it's just an intense form of manipulation. Extreme pressure, extreme, intense, fast-paced extortion. And does it uh, primarily target teenagers or is it uh, kind of uh, across the board? Yeah, it's uh, the, the sex extortion seems to be the later teens, but it's early 20s too. I, I would say the average is probably between 17 and 22. No, I, I know better than to pretend I'm your age, John, and I'm certainly <laughs> not Travis's age, but we do hear stories of, of people of all ages getting uh, uh, targeted by sextortion scammers. I'm curious, you said that it was a sort of glamorized term. Is there a better way to talk about sextortion that, that is perhaps a little more accurate and less glamorizing? I don't know that I like the word or don't like the word. I guess that's that's really a moot point, but it, the the problem with the what that is, is that it's a perfect word because it's, it's sex-based, it really is, and it's extortion. So really the two combined is really what it is because it's, it's very sex-driven. And that's why, this, that's why sextortion is such a great crime if you're a criminal because everybody that this is happening to isn't talking about it because it's so personal and they sent photos. But at the end of the day, you're you're having to admit that you're having this sexual conversation with somebody. A lot of these people are married and girlfriends and boyfriends and different things. So it's always under the covers. And these extortionists know that. Some of the victims are being victimized for days and they just keep opening it up and they're just torturing them. So to call it something, this, that, or the other thing, I, I don't think really matters. But the word sextortion, I think it is is a literal word and a literal term for what actually it is. No, and I think that, you know, short of, you know, every for every 100,000 people, you may find one who is an Austin Powers type who thinks it's funny and, and encourages you to send the content around. But, you know, the fact is that it works exactly because of the shame and the panic. Scams work best when they create an extreme situation that requires an instant reaction from the target. And I've never seen it as clearly as this story. But Danny wasn't actually involved. No, the the account was hacked. Um, these these suspects purchased hacked accounts and used those hack, hacked accounts to perpetrate extortion on over a hundred victims in our case alone. These extortionists and and a lot of these criminal enterprises, they're businesses. They really are. And even in our case, we had we had the face of the of the plot who was dealing directly with Jordan and communicating with Jordan. His brother was building media and content and doing all the background stuff. They had money people that were involved in this. So they, they all have their own jobs. And there's there's groups of people that go out and just all that they do is hack social media accounts, get the information, pile them up into a bucket, and then sell them as a package to people that did this to Jordan. They just buy bulk accounts that are already compromised. So they, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. This initial account was uh, an authentic or legitimate account that had just been compromised, right? This one specifically, yes. Others are not. Others are created. I mean, you can go on a Gmail right now and make 100 fake Gmail accounts and then go right over to Facebook and Instagram and make 100 fake Facebook accounts too. So they're, they're doing that as well, but it's easier to use hacked accounts because then they look more authentic on the receiving end of their scheme as well. So when Jordan got this friendly request from Danny Roberts who has, you know, a thousand followers already. 
it seems legit at the time versus getting Danny Roberts with no pictures and three followers, then you know it's kind of a joke. Right. Now, have you reached out to Instagram and found out what they're doing about these hacked accounts that are being used for crime? Well, they're not doing anything. You know, that, that's just the answer. They're not doing anything. Nothing. Like you said, a lot of these cases go unreported. But you went to the police, who went to the FBI. What did they learn about the people pretending to be Danny? Yeah, our case ended up overseas in Nigeria. We were given that information pretty early on. The FBI team was was very upfront with things. They didn't give us a lot of information, but they said, hey, we believe this to be overseas. We have a pretty solid path in which to investigate. We'll keep you posted, but it's going to be a long road. And at that point, we kind of, you know, we're just like, well, it's overseas. What the hell's going to happen now? Right. So, but it ended up in Nigeria and ultimately there was federal indictments on six individuals, all Nigerian. Three of those individuals are facing federal U.S. indictments. The other three are being charged locally in Nigeria. So those, those first three are going to be held there and tried and prosecuted there. And then the other three are coming to the United States. Last week, two of the three were extradited back to the United States. And we were in court with them last week, multiple times. And did you actually come into any uh, contact with them? Or Yeah, we, we got to see them as they walked in the courtroom. They had their initial appearance last Monday that we attended in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is about six hours from here. <laughs> and then we're back down on Thursday for the arraignment and the pretrial conference. That must have been pretty intense. It certainly was. Yeah, there's um, a lot of emotion there. And what were the uh, charges that have uh, been brought against them? So there's, there's four charges. There's three individuals that are being extradited, two of which already have. The third one, Ezekiel, he, has, uh, he was arrested a little bit later than the other two. So he's still waiting for his extradition hearing in Nigeria. So he's a little bit lagging in the criminal justice process there. So we're hoping that he's back in U.S. soil and extradited in the next couple months. So all three defendants can be charged together with one trial. So they are charged with of the three that are coming, the other two that are here are brothers, Samuel and Samson Agoshi. Those two were brothers. They were kind of the ringleaders in the deal. They were the trigger guy. Samuel was the actual guy communicating with Jordan. And he's actually charged with one extra crime. So there's four charges, four federal crimes, mostly dealing with child pornography and conspiracy type crimes. And then Samuel, because he was the guy communicating with Jordan, and they believe that he was the one that caused his death. He's actually charged with, um, it's something like internet usage causing deaths of a minor or something, and it's a, it's a minimum 30-year felony. So how, how did authorities track these people back to Nigeria, and how did they get the Nigerian authorities to uh, get busy and apprehend them? Once our local FBI team discovered it was, was overseas, and they had a pretty solid path to investigate this. They put a lot of resources in. There was dozens and dozens of FBI agents working on this case all over the country. And they have some pretty amazing people that did some pretty amazing things. Thank goodness that all the powers or whatever it was that got them here worked. Yeah, the relationship with the FBI and the Nigerian government, and especially the, the EFCC, which is the Nigerian FBI agency, basically. Those relationships were very solidified and they worked really well together. And I actually got to meet two of the lead investigators from Nigeria that came here last week with the defendants that came to, to America to transport them. So I got to meet them and, and talk with them for a while. And it's all those things that the moon and the stars aligned for us and it just really worked out. But it's the Nigerian government was, was amazing. They really were. I mean, and to be honest with you, from the time that they got indicted to the time they're, they're on USO, it was only three months, which is even in the history of the FBI on any cases of extradition, it's almost a first because those relationships were there. Everything fell in place. The defendants didn't, they, you know, they waived their extradition and got here quicker, but we could have never done it if we didn't have those, those strong relationships with the Nigerian government. And they were able to work together to track these criminals down? I don't know exactly how they came to discover these things, but I can imagine that it was IP address tracked to some level. And I'm assuming that these characters probably didn't do enough 
protection on their end to make sure that they weren't discovered. But as they peeled back the layers of the IP addresses and started finding all these people they were communicating with, that's when they discovered it was over a hundred victims that they that they had been communicating with. Over a hundred victims. Wow. Do you know if all those victims are in the U.S.? That I don't know. Are they included in the indictment? Only mentioned. There is one other victim that's named victim two in the indictment um, that actually had sent money. And I believe they probably put that in there because what happened was the night that Jordan died, the, the suspects were actually Googling Jordan and they knew that he died. So the next day they knew that he died, but they continued to extort people as well. And I would venture to guess that's, that that uh, victim number two was probably somebody that they tried to extort, even though, you know, even though they just caused somebody's death. And you can read some of the comments that were made in the indictment there as well. That's a really aggravating circumstance. May I ask, how did they know that Jordan had passed the next day? Through obituaries and social media, they were they were just googling. They were Googling and just searching and doing their thing. So it, it didn't take long. You know, we know everybody in town. And so it just it spread like wildfire. And, and they were already following his Instagram and they already had figured out who he knew and all of that. Right, right. It sounds like in uh, Jordan's case, this happened uh, very quickly. But in uh, retrospect, um, what advice might you give to other parents out there um, about the dangers uh, facing their children on social media? I think we have to have a serious conversation with ourselves and uh, with our kids about social media. It, it just really isn't a great place, right? Um, it's it's not a it's not a healthy place for old you know older people as well. I mean, it's just there's just a lot of nonsense there, and young people are being. Their, their minds are shifting so much and they're putting so much stock into what they look like and how they act and how many likes they get and friends and all the followers. And they're doing it at such a young age. It just, it completely warps their reality. So by the time they get into these young teenage, middle teenage, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, even they're, they're living this completely alternate reality online versus what's actually happening in real life. And I see it all the time. I see it in my business. I see it at restaurants. I just see it all over the place, right? I think everybody does. So at the end of the day, really the number one thing is I think parents need to really step back and and, and think about what, what their kids are what their kid need on social media because I'm pretty sure it's nothing. And there's <laughs> a lot of problems with it. You know? A hundred percent. I could ask everybody on the planet, if you can email me one great thing about social media and why it's why it's so great for your kids, let me know because I'm talking to millions of people and I'd love to share it, but I can't find anything. So um, I think that conversation just needs to start there. But I understand that that's, you know, not going to be reality for a lot of folks and, and it's sad, but here we are. So if your kids are on social media, if your kids even have a phone, you're, you're giving your children access to the planet in their fingertips. So if you're going to do that, you probably should be aware of what's happening on it and you should probably be aware of the things that they're actually doing. So that means, yes, looking at it, looking and spying or whatever you want to call it, getting apps that track them, getting apps that, that carbon copy their emails and text messages, reading what their Instagram and Facebook are saying. Keep them off apps like Snapchat where the messages are disappearing. It's a recipe for bad things to happen. You sound, you sound like Adam. You know, the best way to not get got is to not be there. But the fact of the matter is, a lot of kids, most kids are using social media, even many adults. I doubt they would see through this scam. But what do you say? What do you tell someone? What do you say to your kids about it? I mean, that's where a lot of us are, right? You just, you're on an off day, you, your girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with you and you're sad and you're three months, two months in and you're just beating your head against the wall and then boom, this person just is throwing attention at you. You know, what's gonna happen? We're human. I think that's a great start because if this does happen and you do fall victim, if you bite and then you end up doing this, um, if you do, then close the computer. That's all you need to do. Just take that lid and just shut it. That's all you have to do. Really, it stops. As soon as that lid goes down, it's done. They're not going to send the pictures. There are some procedures to, to work through with Meta through the missing and exploited children. They created a new program called Take It Down. That's recent. That is one thing they're, do, they're doing defensively. They have the ability to electronically search for those images and pull them off the internet. 
I don't know how well it works. It's pretty new, but it is an option for people. So a lot of that, that content can actually come down eventually. But if you do this, just shut your computer. Don't delete anything. Call law enforcement and start an investigation because what might not seem such a big deal to you, even if you just started doing this and didn't send money, it could be the key that opens up a much bigger investigation. And, and the Missing and Exploited Children's group, they track all this stuff. So it's it's really good that they know about it. Well, you sound, you know, you sound like an advocate. Have you transitioned to doing advocacy now in the wake of, of Jordan's passing? That's what I am. Yeah, really. I mean, the FBI has even said that. They're like, you're guys now. You're people because you're the ones that are living this. And, you know, we have to be the advocate because... We're the only case in the history of the country that's here. We're the first. Jordan's the first. So we have to do this. And we're getting the attention that it needs. And we feel that we need to carry the legacy for our son because we don't want his short 18 years to be a waste. And how do you hope that uh, Jordan's story will uh, raise awareness and protect others? Well, I think it already is. We're saving thousands of lives by doing this. I mean, just just the volume of people that are contacting me, thanking us, and they're sharing their stories, parents and victims. It's really overwhelming. I, I haven't responded to anything from um, social media since last week because we we're out of town Thursday, traveling Friday. So I'm, three or four days, I'm probably going to spend three hours tonight or tomorrow just responding to people that reached out to me, sharing their stories. And they're horrific and and. You know, they're just, they're heartbreaking because these these people were just so traumatized by this. And even years later, they're still traumatized by it. I think that, you know, your advice about turning the device off or just stopping, you know, they can't scam you if you're not there. Right. I mean, but the other thing is, I don't know how I would, listening to you, I'm almost certainly, there's actually no way that I'm not going to call my kids after this interview. And... Um, and tell them what I just learned. And I think that is the, the immediate gift that you have for the world. Um, it's a strange way to get a gift, but it's, it's, um, it's crucial, you know, to pass this on. I think that the, how do you tell someone though you know, someone has just taken a compromising picture of themselves, you know, being intimate with somebody. How do you say it's okay if everyone in the world sees that picture? It's better than the alternative. How do you say that? I just, I wish that this button didn't exist in human beings, but it does, the shame button. The unfortunate reality of that situation is we could put a thousand kids in a gymnasium, high schoolers in a gymnasium, and probably 25 to 50% are sending nude photos to one another. But innocently, you know, to the boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, to whoever, but that's how they are communicating sexually. They're not going down to parties and hanging out and knocking on doors and meeting people. They're doing it online and they communicate online and they communicate sexually online. So for them, this is, this is normal behavior. So when we talk to the kids, we have to tell them that every keystroke that you put on this computer is forever, everywhere, forever. Even Snapchat, its whole thing is disappearing photos, but people take screenshots. You even get a notification when someone takes a screenshot. So yes, your photos might be gone, but how many copies are out there? I don't know if this would work for my children or for anyone, but the fact is you never know who's looking and we've all had the experience when we're in our phone you know we have our phone on us and we have certain apps on our phone and all of a sudden our phone is delivering to us an advertisement for something we talked about now some people will say well it's because you also googled that weber grill you were thinking about buying um but it's not always the case and i think the assumption has to be that whether it's your internet service provider the social media service that you use or the people on the other side of those social media services, using them as well, somebody's looking and it may not be who you think it is. That's right. And, and, and just operate accordingly because you wouldn't get up with the Jumbotron at a game and get naked. Right. But when you're at home by yourself thinking you're communicating with one person, you're on a Jumbotron. Like in the, the, the nature of your podcast is, you know, there's all kinds of that people are getting or hacking into baby monitors and all sorts of other things. And 
once they get into the phone or the computer or laptop, then like you said, then it's on that jumbotron and, and the world is the victor, is suspect's oyster. It's such a hard, hard line to really to find because we, you know, we can tell kids to stop doing this all day long, but they're not going to, you know, so at, at best as we can spend a little bit more time saying, but if you do, um, but also educating too. And the other side of the coin too, you know, our story is so extreme, right? I mean, we lost our son and this is extremely tragic and we're doing great things, but let's, let's dial it back and just get into some normal stuff here. You know, women are being victimized online. They're being body shamed. They're, they're creating this atmosphere where they have to be somebody they're actually not for purposes of whatever, because the internet says they need to be. And then, like you said, you just have to pretend that you're being surveilled all the time. So think about that before you start typing in and clicking and sending. And the other thing that I've kind of learned over this process too is it is how easy it is for these extortionists to get information. They're buying hacked accounts they're, and they're buying picture too. So what happens is these young ladies are going on Instagram, they're posting a picture of themselves. But what happens is there's groups of, of people out there that go onto those accounts and they package up those photos and they sell them as a bulk to extortionists like my son's extortionist. And then they have a whole, the whole bank and they just start sending those photos as they progress in that phone conversation until they're sending that, the half, half naked photos of themselves. And, and people like my son believe that that's, that's the woman I'm talking to and she's really hot and she's into me and I'm excited and I'm all riled up and then boom, I send my picture and then it's all over. Well, one thing's been uh, verified too on Instagram is that they actually, their algorithm pushes pictures of like the less clothing you're wearing, the more likely it is to show up on the top of your feed. So well, it's unbelievable. propagates it. I just can't understand why meta, I don't understand why we're not pushing to have um, some more security on their platforms. I mean, why are we allowing Facebook to allow somebody to have 60, 50, 100 different social media or Facebook or Instagram accounts on one on one IP address. I mean, that would be something super easy. We can say, you know what, social media, you're not allowed to do that anymore. You need to come up with a system that says, you know, you can have two or three Facebook accounts on one device and that's it. But we all know that they're selling ads to Fortune 500 companies and, and larger uh, based on volume and half of their user base is probably fake. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, you can sign up for an Instagram account when you're 13 years old. The other thing is you have to be 13 to sign up for an Instagram account. And like Travis said, Instagram knows how much skin is in the photo. And it would be very easy for all of those platforms to say, this person's a minor. They're sending a nude photograph. This is not going to be allowed to go. They could simply stop it with a filter. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways that social media is not doing everything that can be done. And the more that you get out there and the more that you talk, John, I think the better our chances are to get some change. What does a 14-year-old, 13-year-old, or 15-year-old need to do on social media? I mean, what, what good is it? There's so much bad that can happen. There's just, mm. there's no good to be on it. And would you let, would you let your 14-year-old walk into a strip club and hang out there and just hang out with yeah. everybody for a while because they just felt like it because all their friends were doing it? No. No. We let them just wander and roll a pack of cigarettes rolled up in their sleeve when they're 15? No. Nope. We don't let them drink booze. We don't let them do marijuana and all the other things that they're doing. We don't let them hang out in bars. Why? Because all the bad things happen there. And it's not always bad. I go to bars all the time. I have a great time. There's not a lot of, there's not, I would actually, I would actually let my girls go to a bar and hang out for the day before I let them on social media. Because there is way worse stuff on social media that they're going to hear in my local tavern hanging out, having lunch. And, and that's, that's the mindset we need to start thinking about. Cause if we're going to just, we're just going to let our kids have free reign of the whole, whole planet in the fingers, in their fingertips, then yeah. why don't we just let them go hang out in bars and hang out and, when we would have drinking loss for what the hell we need that for. You certainly gave me food for thought there because I was thinking, well, there must be a technological fix, but making it a, uh, making it a platform that's only for people who are old enough to drink or old enough to vote makes a lot more sense. Yeah. It just, uh. If there was so much benefit for a 15-year-old to be on social media, then let's hear about it and talk about it and make it work.
If you or someone you know is struggling with feelings of suicide, help is available. Call 988. There's someone there 24 hours a day. Don't keep it to yourself. This spring, get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike with electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means you get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance an electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com. And please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-B-I-K-S dot com. So, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address, or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it. I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. This was an incredibly good conversation with John. We needed to hear it. It was really, really heavy. But important. And, you know, it brings to mind the fact that uh, the internet and the content on it makes it necessary to have another conversation with our kids. We're all used to having the one about sex and uh, substance abuse, but uh, internet use is definitely up there. I had that conversation with my children when they were just starting to get online and um, they happened to be the, the children of a person who worked in cybersecurity. Not everybody has that. Well, that's true. I mean, all of us, our kids are kids of people who work in cybersecurity. The big thing about it is it could be life-threatening. One of the other things, too, here is that kids are getting online a lot earlier than you would have thought. Um, my daughter has classmates in third grade that have their own iPhones. So that ends up meaning that you need to have the talk a lot earlier than you would probably think you would have to. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, what is in that conversation? Because I think all of us would have it slightly differently. But the, the bottom line is, when you go online, you are heading into a toxic environment not unlike you know i don't know i i, I have to say th this conversation did not make me think of of unicorns and butterflies it made me think of the ocean filled with microplastics it made me think of climate change it made me think of and this is climate change it's just climate change online it's climate change in the way that we communicate with each other and the fact that the way we communicate with each other is not 
it, it, it leaves openings for people who are not our friends. It's a jumbotron. That's the thing that kids have to understand. Whatever you do, it's there. It's there permanently. And a lot of the people you think you're talking to aren't your friends. They aren't even the people you think you're talking to. Absolutely. And I think one of the stickiest things here is the fact that when it comes to getting children online, there's no shallow end of the pool, despite our best efforts. There's no safeguard that you can do that's going to keep them protected or isolated from all the negative stuff that they'll be able to encounter. Yeah. Now, I got to say right there, Travis, that I have accused you of being the uh, blow pop owl in the past. Once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, three, three licks. Uh, um, but um, that was really wise. No, Bo, I totally agree with you. And I think that, that Travis made what I think was a, an important metaphor because a lot of kids get in situations online where they feel like they're drowning. Yeah, and they can't swim, Adam. That's the thing, is they're not, they're, they don't have all the information. They don't know that the person they're talking to might not. It might even be a friend, so-called friend, right? Mm -hmm. Who's just a bully at school. The bottom line is, like you said, Adam, you have to, you have to conduct yourself online. And like, say that to a kid, conduct yourself. They're like, what, is, what am I trained? But the, you have to behave as though you're on a jumbotron. And the other thing I would like to say here is let's engender communication because I want to live in a world, I got to say, I don't want to live in a world where this sort of thing happens. I want to live in a world where we all say to our kids, wake us up if something goes wrong. There's never a bad moment. You always get in touch with me because, you know, one of the things that this communications device does, ironically, is it really minimizes human communication. Mm -hmm. The cure to this is communication. The cure to this situation is real communication with the people who love us. And hopefully, in an ideal world, those are the people we live with. No, and, and I think the message also is that when, when we were your age, if we did something stupid, it was generally in front of a few people. At your age, at this moment, in the digital world, if you do something that's stupid, it could be in front of the world. Yeah... Yeah, and a big part of that, a big part of that too, that I think we might need to uh, sort of adjust some of our expectations is to be tolerant, if not forgiving, of people when they're embarrassing themselves. If they say like, "Oh God, this just happened," then just being able to say like, "You know, that happens more often than you'd think. That's you'll be you'll be fine." Okay, but you know, I, I think there's something to that, Travis. We need to start walking around the world like everyone we meet is having the worst day of their life, and you know, maybe we can help make it a little better. And we're there. We're there for them. So what's the takeaway? Uh, is it as simple as, I think it is, if you're listening to this, be careful. Get ready to be surprised. Because you will be. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin. <laughs>